You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Fuck Captain Kirk. Star Trek action figures, each sold separately. What's up, Spock? There's Captain Kirk and... The Klingons have his business. There's Executive Officer William Decker and Dr. Bones McCoy. I'm beaming down. Back to the Enterprise. You can collect all the Star Trek figures, each sold separately. Captain Kirk, Spock, and all Star Trek action figures sold separately by Mego. Hello and welcome once again to GeekFest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone and today we are going to take a visit over to Star Trek. Specifically, the motion picture. The one that kind of started it all as far as going to the movies to see Star Trek. It is not exactly one of the top fan favorites, but it is nonetheless a very important film in terms of how it revitalized the franchise. After a couple of missteps, the movies finally first started coming out in 1979, and we are going to today examine the action figure line that originally had been put out for the motion picture characters. And we're also gonna look at the comic book movie adaptation. I know you guys know how much I enjoy movie adaptations and all the little bonus material that some of them seem to have. But that's not the end of Star Trek. We are going to continue to look at in an upcoming future episode. Then we are going to look at our posters of the month. Today we have, this being a new year, we are starting off with Rambo First Blood Part Two, and Conquest for the Planet of the Apes. Two very different films, but nonetheless, uh, great poster art, very iconic material, and a couple of little stories about the films themselves. So let's get started with Star Trek The Motion Picture, Mego Action Figures. You can collect them all! You Battery's not included. Get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. For our toy segment today, we are going to talk about the 1979 Star Trek The Motion Picture Miko action figure line that was released, obviously, to coincide with the film. It's probably no mystery that just like the film, you know, tried to cash in on the success of Star Wars, in the final manner in which it was made and put out, you know, in terms of continuing the franchise, the action figure line was similarly 
looked at in that manner in terms of all of a sudden it is popular, it is profitable. <laughs> That's a better word, profitable, to put out, you know, merchandising to go along with a film, potentially big sci-fi franchisey type of film. And Star Trek is no exception. From the beginning, you know, they put out stuff that was hopefully going to be a successful line as Star Wars. But Migo seemed to be kind of a step behind, not so much in the variety of materials, because they had a lot of stuff. For example, if you go to the MigoMuseum.com website, it's MigoMuseum.com, you're going to see every Migo conceivable <laughs> you know, action figure line out there. And they were a very diversified company in terms of all the different properties they would hit. And Star Trek seemed to be perfect, absolutely perfect, you know, for a potential blockbustery kind of, you know, action figure line. The figures that were put out were basically released in two waves. The first wave was more or less all the human or human-ish characters, which included Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Deckard, and Ilya. But then there was a second wave that most people never really got to see which included all the aliens in the film. Now, you might say to yourself, what aliens? Well, <laughs> that's a whole other issue. Um, you know, from pictures that we've seen and trading cards and all this other stuff, there were quite a number of aliens in the film. And if you freeze frame certain shots, uh, you could kind of see them in the background. I'm not entirely sure why they chose to kind of make them background, way, way, way background characters as opposed to bring them up front a little bit. Maybe it's because they wanted to have a more cinematic feel to it, and they just were not up to par. They, these were more television type of <laughs> background characters, you know, as far as the prosthetics and the design. But they did have a regalian, were commonly known as Sorens. They're kind of like a lizard, like a purple lizardy looking thing, but they're wearing a Starfleet uniform. There's a Klingon which is a traditional Klingon-looking kind of guy, like the movie. Again, we're not going back to the TV series here. There's an Arcturian, which is a weird-looking guy. He's wearing kind of like a orangey jumpsuit, and his face looks like it's dripping off of his skull. <laughs> Again, a very unusual-looking uh, character. You can probably find pictures of him on the internet. There is a Bedalusian, <laughs> if that's how you pronounce it. And I've never seen this character before. He's wearing kind of like a silver outfit, a red robe, and a robotic-ish kind of head. You know, very weird-looking uh, action figure. A Zarnatite, which is kind of like a, uh, again, another uh, grayish, roby kind of figure with a big brain-looking head uh, and two kind of low, low eyes. Uh, you, you know, like I said, you might find pictures of this. I, I have no clue. And a Megarite. Another alien weird-looking creature with a weird face wearing a black cloak with a black hood. I can only assume these were all crew members of, of something. <laughs> on the Enterprise, on the Starfleet headquarters scene... Uh, maybe on the star base, because those are really the only settings of this movie. But the point here is that, as I mentioned earlier, the alien wave was almost never seen in the U.S. The initial line was uh, put out there. Uh, the movie 
didn't do too well, didn't get too good of, you know, the reviews were not fantastic, and the box office wasn't fantastic either. So it had a, a kind of like a mediocre type of um, debut, which is no mystery. The movie is different. It's not what we're used to. You know, they were going for something much bigger than they got. But unfortunately, the toys also suffered in a similar manner. After the first wave came out, which I barely remember seeing that first wave, because I wasn't into the movie at the time that the movie came out, you know, I became a Star Trek fan after the movie came out through reruns and right before Star Trek II. You know, Star Trek II is really what catapulted me into Star Trek as far as the films go. Then I found, I was able to find, you know, motion picture, was able to watch it. I think I might, I might have rented it or maybe watched it on cable, something like that. I don't know. But that's what really got me going. And if I try to think back then, even, you know, toy stores, yeah, maybe there were, I, it's, I, I could be imagining it, but I might have been able to see some of those old Star Trek action figures, the human ones, like I said before, on the shelves. But no, the alien ones, I've never seen them in the shelves in the past. I would even go as far as to say I haven't ever even seen them on conventions in the present. Either I wasn't looking for them or they didn't notice them or whatever. These were, you know, apparently carded because of the f- kind of failure of the film. And the first wave suffered because of that, obviously. You know, that second wave was just not released as widely as you would expect it to be. From what I understand, that second wave was probably easier to be found in Canada or in some of the European countries because they just kind of didn't produce that many and they just kind of got them out of the way. Even though, from an artistic point of view, the aliens were much, much better looking figures, more creative, more outlandish looking. You know, the humans are basically humans. The construction is the Mego construction, which it's interesting because they decided to kind of go a little bit in the Kenner fashion in terms of making them five points of articulation. They're very well made. They're very nice looking. The facial features are better than usual, I would say. I know I sometimes complained in the past about Migo, but the likenesses are very good. The hair, the mustache, you know, all the different uh, facial features, they did it really good. The uniforms are great. I love those original uniforms from the motion picture. And granted, through the film, they go through different costume changes, if you will. There's the uniform, the dress uniform, which is what the Kirk figure is based on, which is a sharp, really sharp-looking uniform, and it plays well here. Granted, in the film, he has a couple of more other changes. He's got a a short sleeve shirt uh, during uh, most of the film, and then at the end, he's got a jacket, you know, during the V'ger encounter. But that's what you get for Kirk. You know, obviously, if this would have been a longer lasting line, I'm sure they would have gone in those directions. Uh, Spock, you get the officer Spock. He's wearing his officer uniform. Not the, the dressy type, but the, the what he's wearing for, through, during the majority of the film. But yeah, I could tell that if the results would have been better, we probably would have had a Vulcan Spock outfit with the long hair. That would have been nice. Or even a Spock in the uh, spacesuit, just like Kirk. Kirk could have been also in the spacesuit, even though that was deleted you know, out of the film. McCoy is wearing his doctor uniform. He's not wearing <laughs> the rocking 70s uh, disco man 
<laughs> bearded with the gold chain uniform medallion guy. That would have been, now that would have been a cool character to have. That should have been like a, uh, uh, an exclusive somewhere where you can only get if you buy a certain hair product or something. <laughs> that would have been great. Uh, let's see. Scotty is wearing, again, traditional. Starfleet uniform, more kind of like what he was wearing when he's flying Kirk around. Not the white protective suit that we then see in Star Trek II and, you know, some of the other uh, Star Trek films. That would have been another nice one that they could have done. But here we have him in, in you know, typical, you know, dress grays. Decker. Decker is, is a little unusual because he's wearing yellow. Now, granted, in the film, he is wearing the yellow, tannish kind of yellow. But... I guess because the figure I have here is old, it's a little discolored. There's a difference between the chest yellow and the arms and legs yellow. This is something that happens with Star Wars figures, you know, the, the color bleaching, the, the change of the, the, the you know, exposure to UV rates and this and that have an effect on them. I, I think that it should have been a little more muted. I believe the yellow should have been a little more like what the arms are. But again, it's, this could be just because, you know, it's the particular one that I have. But overall, like I said, these are really good-looking figures. They're very well-sculpted. Now, the chests, if you really look at them, for example, Scotty and Decker might use the same torso piece and maybe even the same arms. They might just be head swaps for all we know. Actually, the, the hips seem to be a little bigger on Decker for some reason, which I bet you is the other way around. I bet you De <laughs> Decker was thinner back then than Scotty. Anyway, Ilea. Wearing Starfleet uniform, very good. And again, here's another character that you could have had her wearing, you know, the white outfit that she wears when she becomes V'ger, you know, when she merges, when she's not Ilea, she's the robot Ilea or whatever, with that little red thing on her neck. So yeah, they could have, they could have gone a couple of different uh, directions with her. She's a pretty nice looking character too, you know, pretty, pretty nice, pretty well you know, made. Uh, and overall, this is a, this is a good line. Uh, I purchased them. Again, I didn't purchase these when they first came out, like I said before. I, Star Trek was not on my radar in 1979. I had just walked in here, basically. I think it was November. I had been here a year or two before, just as a, as a tourist, just on vacation, just to visit my grandparents. And then we went back to Uruguay. So we were only here for like maybe a month, let's say. Let's say, let's just say it was 1977? Maybe? 78? 7? I don't know. But 79, November, I think it was, that's when we came to stay. And I do remember seeing commercials for Star Trek, but I didn't have the slightest idea what I was looking at. Some things looked interesting, and I don't want to say familiar, because I wasn't familiar with Star Trek back then. But it was completely off my radar. So, like I said before, when I started buying Star Wars figures, if there were still some Star Treks around, I might have seen them, but completely not interested whatsoever in them. I, it would take a few years, you know, of repeats of Star Trek to be able to, you know, understand what I was dealing with. So these figures, I found out about them later, you know, as I got interested in toys and, you know, my first major Star Trek figure obsession came with the Playmates line, which happened during the 90s while I was in college, you know, the next generation, which then started to grow and grow into Deep Space Nine, into Voyager, and along the way, they started dipping 
into the movies. They started dipping into Wrath of Khan and the motion picture. And all of a sudden, it's like, I remember a friend of mine would say, hey, by the way, you know, these were already, some of these already existed back then and they were really well made. And that's, you know, later on, that's how I started looking around. And it's like, wow, you know what? You're right. These are very well made. So my Star Trek uh, figures, which is, like I said, the collection of just the humanish looking ones that I currently own, that I'm very happy with. They look really sharp. Is new. I got him through eBay. I believe I got him in two waves. The first wave was, uh, you know, the McCoy, Kirk, Nimoy wave lot. <laughs> and then I got another lot that I ended up getting an additional Kirk, I think, and Spock just to be able to get the other three, the Scotty, the, the Ilea, and the Decker. But I'm happy with what I have. If one day I run into an alien creature, it'd be great. Some of you, you know, if you really, really look deep, you might have them in your collection hiding somewhere. I believe that three of those aliens, uh, let's see, the Klingon, the Acturian, and the Magarite. God, these names are hard. Also were included in a JCPenney set, like a little baggie. You could get them. You can order them from JCPenney. Again, not, not in my radar. I wasn't even able to do that for Star Wars back then. I didn't understand what that meant. There were some other accessories. They did put out a bridge, very hard to find, never seen it, just seen pictures of it. They put out a couple of ships from the film, obviously not the scale with the action figures, but, you know, collectible ships, the Enterprise, the Klingon Bird of Prey, the Vulcan transport uh, shuttle, you know, that kind of stuff. And they also had a larger 12-inch line of figures, you know, also based on this. But granted, you know, once this whole thing fell apart, everything fell apart. They just canceled everything. If you're lucky enough to find a carded one, the art is very nice. The drawings are, are very, you know, it's it's the, the type of drawings that I enjoy. It's, it's, it's poster quality, you know, art. It's not just a picture. Uh, however, in the back, <laughs> you do have pictures of 12 figures. And, you know, you know for a fact that these aliens existed somewhere because they, they do have, you know, the actual actor, I guess, wearing the costume. And, and you only see them kind of from the from the chest up, but at least you get a pretty good idea of what these things look like. Going forward, you know, when I go to conventions, I'm going to keep an eye out for these. And I know I'm never going to find them because, like I said, they are apparently so hard to find. I've barely seen any of these aliens on eBay lately. I Maybe I haven't been looking hard enough, but the, uh, you know, the human characters are the ones you see the most of. So, overall, I really enjoy this line. And the quality of what I was able to find on eBay is also, you know, pretty surprising that these things actually were able to be, you know, maintaining good shape. You know, they're not as beat up as as I would have expected them to be. And they're a great companion. You know, you got to keep in mind that, the, you know, once a movie doesn't do too well, they just cut everything off. So at least we got a little taste of something that down the line, it would be enormous. It would be a monster in terms of how many more films they would put out, how much the, the merchandising, forget it, it's insane. And But the, specifically the action figure, the three and three quarter inch kind of scale figures, those are the ones that, uh, you know, really people go crazy on. And like I said, when it came to Playmates, that's when it went nuts, you know. Uh, and that's primarily, I think, obviously because of Next Generation, the popularity of the television show is what f fed, you know, the fan base, merchandising, action figure collecting uh, community. But as far as we can tell, uh, you know, other than the television show and the, any of the other Mego, because remember, Mego already, already had 
Star Trek figures, you know, the larger size, not the 12 inch, the, the, the smaller, like, I guess they were like, what, seven inches, you know, Star Trek-y ones, but they were more like dolls. They weren't, these were not action figures. These are the first Star Trek action figures. You know, you could legally say they're action figures and it's a great line. So if you're into them or if you're not, take a look because this might just, you know, get you started in a nice little small collection. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. Worst crossover ever. Oh, by the hammer of Thor! Well, what brings you guys here? We're looking for a recommendation about comic books. Oh, well, I recommend you don't open a store and sell them. My spidey sense is tingling. Okay, continuing with our Star Trek the motion picture theme, we are going to talk about the comic book movie adaptation of the film. This being the 15th comic book adaptation, you know, the, the, the large size format comic book adaptations for Marvel that were put out. These are, as I mentioned uh, a number of times in the past, considered to be the Marvel Super Special magazine, which differs from your typical comic book size because it's a magazine size and it has the entire story in one shot as opposed to when they, you know, put them out as individual comic book issues. This is all built into one. This is the 15th edition. We had many, many editions we talked about from Star Wars to Conan, you know, you name it. There was this period of time where they put out about 44-ish kind of issues ranging in, in movie themes, you know, mainly, you know, action-y, sci-fi, horror, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, they don't go too much into the dramatic side. <laughs> but every now and then something unusual creeps in. Well, for Star Trek The Motion Picture, you know, and and I've told this story before, I wasn't too familiar with the movie. Uh, I had not purchased this originally when it first came out. I jumped on the bandwagon after starting to watch the repeats and then on Star Trek II and then backtracked to Star Trek The Motion Picture. As far as the comic book goes, I, I really enjoy this comic book in terms of the art. You know, I'm, I'm more about the art when it comes to this type of thing. The script seems to follow it pretty true. Now, what you have to keep in mind about the script is that they went on the shooting script. The writers of the comic book used the uh, shooting script uh, to put out this comic book. So the good thing about it is that, or the unusual thing about it, is that you end up seeing some more things that you wouldn't see before. Basically deleted scenes. This has happened before, uh, both with Star Wars and Empire. Uh, I remember, you know, how exciting it is to all of a sudden see a couple of extra things and you're like, what the heck is this? I never saw this before. You know, what's this all about? And Star Trek has a nice big chunky scene that's here that is not in the movie. The movie is also kind of difficult um, in terms of how to describe it because we've done a commentary on Star Trek The Motion Picture a long time ago. You guys can go back and listen to that. But the problem is that now... You know, by now, we have so many different versions of Star Trek The Motion Picture. You have the original theatrical release. You have, you know, the, the television version. You know, when they aired it on TV, they added some stuff. Then you have a director's cut that was put out on DVD a long time ago. They, they were doing that. They were putting out a whole bunch of different director's editions or director's cuts, if you will, uh, of a lot of them. Not all of them, but a lot of them. 
Then you have Blu-ray versions, and now, uh, sooner or later, we're going to start getting 4K versions. Now, as far as I can tell, the Blu-ray version of the film is not the director's edition of the film. So you do have a little inconsistency here in terms of some of these are going to have some more shots than others. Uh, Not a lot, not, you know, entire full-blown sequences, I would say, but... They did do a lot of cleanup work, I remember, in some of these new versions. You know, the effects were cleaned up. Things look a lot better. But for some reason, they haven't really put out, you know, the director's edition of the, uh, you know, on Blu-ray. They did it, I believe, for Star Trek II. And that's because of the anniversary last year of the film. 35th anniversary, I believe it was. So they did put out a Blu-ray director's edition. But from the motion picture... I imagine it's because it wasn't that popular. They really didn't go all out on it in terms of saying, all right, well, let's put out, you know, the Blu-ray version of this, you know, director's edition. The comic itself, like I said, follows this script pretty precisely. However, you do have to, just like you do on most of these comics, you have your pluses and your minuses. You know, when you have a plus like a deleted scene that's added, that's a great bonus feature for somebody who's, you know, really into the story. But because of the time limitations of a comic book, you have to take out stuff. And right off the bat, in the beginning of the story, as V'ger approaches the Klingons and starts to devastate them, this is being monitored. You know, we see it happening also through the eyes of Starfleet at a Starfleet starbase. You know, they're watching this happening too. That entire part, the the Starfleet side of witnessing that was completely cut out of the comic book, you know, the beginning of the comic book. My only suspicion is that it it might have been a little too jarring in the beginning of the comic book to have this two-way interaction taking place of one group monitoring the destruction of another group. It would have been a little too maybe difficult to, to project on a comic book. So on the comic book, it goes straight from the... Klingon attack right through Vulcan where Spock is doing his thing. Overall, there's a certain style to this comic that I really enjoy. Now, I wouldn't call it 100% realistic in terms of what you see today in comic books, especially, you know, movie adaptations of, of, you know, comic book versions. But what I would consider this to be the sweet spot of how I conceive to be comic books in terms of how far they usually go or they traditionally have gone in terms of that. Going super realistic, while I love it, I don't consider that to be the classic comic book look. It does get better, but it does kind of shy away from, you know, what the classic comic book look is. It doesn't look as old as some of the older stuff that the quality is just way off, and it doesn't seem to reach a happy medium. This one goes right in the middle as far as I'm concerned. The character likenesses are pretty much as good as they're going to get. I never got the impression that people were going out of their way to make their characters not look like the actors. So this is a situation where maybe they did have the rights (laughs) to portray these actors as their likenesses, which is a big problem in a lot of these other ones that I've reviewed and read, that it's like all the sense like, oh, too bad they couldn't make them look like. And you're then wondering, is the artist just not that good? Or is there some contractual thing that they're not allowed to? And most of the times it's a contractual thing. They don't have the rights to the likenesses of the actors. But here, I guess they do because they did a damn good job, you know, portraying a lot of these actors, you know, to look like they're the actual actors. The main difference I think that you'll find is 
in the colors, I would say. The color palettes are very different than the final movie color palettes. The movie color palettes, they go a certain way because they're trying to portray a certain look to the film. But here, they seem to purposely go out of their way, I think, to give you a blend of colors so that you have a lot of loud popping visuals coming at you. And that's, I guess, a way of portraying... I mean, first of all, I assume that's just a comic book thing. you got to be colorful when a comic book. And the other thing is to portray action, to portray the type of special effects spectacle that you cannot have on a comic book. That's how they project those images, is by making them more colorful. When you watch the movie, it's a completely different animal. The main difference that I'm going to find with the comic book is that and again, it's a comic book. You got to keep saying that to yourself. Carlos, it's a comic book. What do you expect? Yes. Is that they do not linger as much on some of the more dramatic special effects spectacle type of scenes, you know, the visual shots as they did on the movie. Now, let's keep in mind, one of the biggest problems this movie had was that entire super long sequences of special effects spectacle scenes the pretty shots of uh you know flying around the enterprise before the enterprise leaves the docking station leaving the docking station um the first approach to v'ger you know just getting kind of close to v'ger then the internal flying around v'ger shots i mean you can probably, I don't know, you could, if you add that up, you probably have a good hour's worth of, it's a lot of stuff that they did. And I know they did it on purpose. I, I, my, you know, my thoughts are that as opposed to Star Wars, where it's an action-y kind of special effects feel to it, this film wanted to go more towards 2001. It's more like 2001, let's say, with likable characters characters were familiar with and that's what i think they were trying to achieve and i think they did that is exactly what we were given but it just doesn't really work that well the star trek formula if you will you know if you're a star trek fan you know from the original series is that you have to encase you have to encompass a story within i don't know what 45 49 minutes you know, and you can't go one way or the other. The, the budgets were never there to go completely crazy, action-y, sci-fi. On the other hand, you could gone just, you know, very talky-talky, not a lot of, you know, space shots, just do everything indoors and sets. You could do that, yeah, but guess what? It gets a little boring at times. So every episode tried to balance that formula successfully and unsuccessfully. With the film, I think what happened is that they went way too much in that other direction. They went way too much on the super smart, thinking, grand visual side and not enough of the kind of action-y, fast-pacey side. Now, for a Kubrick film, 2001, this is the type of thing that works because when you're watching Kubrick, it's a different experience. You are going to have these long, quiet shots that not much seems to happen, but it works with the style of the type of film you're watching. I could only picture the only other person similar to that would be like David Lynch. There's a certain aesthetic or a certain style that lets you get away with that. But for a Star Trek film, 
I don't think that works. I think it was too much, like I said, trying to do a Kubrick-esque <laughs> Star Trek, which is what could potentially happen when you bring in a director. Now, this wasn't Kubrick, obviously. This was Robert Weiss, so it's a different type of director, but he's more of a cinematic, you know, legend type of de- director. Uh, and this is what could happen. I know that now, you know, the buzz going around Star Trek is that, you know, Tarantino might be directing a Star Trek film. And it's the question is, well, does this become a Tarantino film or is it a Star Trek film directed by Tarantino? So you have to be very careful not to go too outside of the expectations in the genre. But anyway, getting back to the comic, the comic cannot, not only doesn't it have the time, it doesn't work, you know, for comic books to linger on these kind of shots. So when you reach these specific scenes on the comic, the Enterprise leaving the space dock, traveling into V'ger, you know, all that kind of stuff. I don't want to say it happens fast, but they do, they definitely do not take the amount of crazy time that they would take, you know, on the movie itself on any of the cuts of the movie. All these different cuts they put together that I talked about earlier really doesn't help as far as I'm concerned in terms of pacing and making the movie feel a little more faster. It kind of, It's still a kind of slow kind of movie where it comes to certain scenes. The movie is great visually. Now, don't get me wrong. Visually, the movie is great. I think it bridges uh, the gap and the representations on the comic book do the same thing. As far as I'm concerned, you know, the uniforms look like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. They, it, this would be the the natural progression of these uniforms, of the ships, of the sets. You know, it, it kind of works. And they do a good job, you know, with the comic book in terms of being able to project that. One of the things that always kind of struck me a little odd about the movie, and this is something that, you know, we'll hear about for the action figures, is that the aliens, there's not a lot of aliens in this movie. Uh, You might see some of them in the background. In the comic book, you do see a couple here or there, but um, they kind of made it a point to kind of not go too crazy with the, uh, you know, the alien presence, uh, as opposed to some of the other films. I think you see them much more better represented. As I said before, the script is pretty dead on in terms of how accurate it is that it follows the story who says which lines how accurate are the lines there doesn't seem too much creative you know input in terms of the script so they, they are pretty good on the script now one of the best things about this comic which i love it when they do this is including a deleted scene that is a i don't want to say uh, it's a very talked about uh, scene you know amongst Trek fans, the it's called the spacewalk scene. Now, in the movie, we see once Ilea is uh, absorbed by V'ger, let's say, and then she returns in, in the form of a um, robotic kind of a uh, being to kind of gather data, Spock puts on a uh, space outfit and goes out, you know, kind of jets, jetpacks out to, uh, to V'ger to uh, attempt to do a mind meld with V'ger, to attempt to communicate with V'ger to try to see exactly what V'ger is up to. And in the movie, we see him uh, going out there and he starts to see these weird images and, and it's a very 2001-ish kind of scene where all this stuff is flying by him and he, he's trying to time things right so he can get in through this small little aperture. They call it an orifice, which is kind of weird. <laughs> Especially the way it looks. But anyway, um, so it's a very 
visually striking scene. You know, he's flying with his little spacesuit, and he goes in there, and he starts to then witnesses these weird lights. And at some point, you almost he he says that he's seeing like a representation, maybe of the of the space station that got uh, you know absorbed. And in the distance, you then see this 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 digitized visual formation of Ilea because she was also kind of absorbed by this uh, entity. And then he's like overwhelmed by so much data that's coming at him that he kind of passes out, wakes up in the infirmary, and then tells you know, everybody about, well, this is what I saw, and then and it's, it's learning, and it's a it's a big it's a gathering. You know, he gives his report in the comic, which again, based on the shooting script, is slightly different. That entire sequence is slightly different. He does go out there, but Kirk, when he's informed that Spock is out there. He goes after him because he wants to see what he's going to do. He's going to what what Spock wants to find. Because remember, up to this time, Spock has been kind of uh, influenced in a way in terms of he has to be here because something's going to happen, and you know he wants to be able to figure out what's this calling that he's feeling. You know, the whole thing that in the beginning of the story had kind of pulled him out from Vulcan in the first place. So. As Kirk goes out there, you know, following him, you know, a few, like a minute or two after he left in terms of just kind of chasing after Spock, he's got his own suit. He's jetpacking along. He gets to a point where these, these little, like, uh, from what I understand, like little pyramids, tiny little pyramids start to kind of uh, hover around Kirk. And then there's more and more. And he's getting kind of encased, you know, in his suit, outside his suit, really. With all these tiny little pyramids that are kind of—I don't want to say suffocating him—but they're they're encasing him, and he tries to reach for his his phaser, and he can't he can't shoot them away. And then Spock kind of wakes up out of his trance or whatever it is, and comes and shoots some of those things, and they dissipate. So now Kirk and Spock are that kind of traveling together, and they enter these different sections that we kind of saw a little bit with Spock, but they enter a specific section that they—it's referred to as the memory wall. And in this memory wall, Spock is able to touch one of these glowing beams, I guess, inside this memory wall, which activates these graphic representations of all these things that were absorbed. Again, including this time around, and you do see this in the comic, like I said before, when, you know, the comic has all this extra Kirk stuff. You do see the space station, you know, a graphic representation of the space station, a graphic representation of the Klingon ship, you know, those birds of prey that were absorbed, and, and even Ilea, and he's able to touch that ball thing in Ilea's neck, let's say, you know, that, that we see in the movie, uh, and Spock is able to perform, you know, the some kind of weird mind meld with this thing, and he starts to understand that... Uh, these are just like all the memory. This is the brain, I guess, of V'ger that they're touching. And he comes to the understanding that this is kind of like the databanks of V'ger. All the information it's been finding, all the stuff, it's in there. So this is a very visual sequence that never made it to the film. From what I understand, a lot of it was shot, but it was never fully realized because of the special effects. They had a problem, apparently, I mean, depending on who you listen to, where the sets were constructed a certain way that they did not interact well with the visual effects. For whatever reason, somebody went one way and somebody went a different way when it came to constructing this thing, and it apparently just didn't work out well. So the whole sequence had to be scrapped, 
And that's when Douglas Trumbull was brought in to come up with a different way of doing the effects uh, for that sequence. So they completely removed the Kirk aspect. They kept the, a lot of the Spock stuff and kind of made the sequence a lot shorter, a lot compressed, less interactive, more visual into what we now see in the final version of the film. Now, if you look at uh, some of the special, uh, well, deleted scenes, bonus features, making ofs type of stuff uh, of the motion picture, you will find a few shots of uh, these sequences being done with, with Kirk and his full-blown, you know, he's got like a white version of the, of the orange version that Spock has, you know, that outfit. And in the internet, there's uh, a couple of websites. You just do a search for um, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Memory Wall, or Spacewalk, Kirk Spacewalk, or Spock Spacewalk, and you'll find a whole bunch of sites uh, that go into super, super detail of the history and how this whole thing was put together. Uh, one website is called Forgotten Trek. Go into Forgotten Trek and look up the memory wall sequences. You'll find them. It's really fascinating how this whole thing was removed. And it is disappointing because it's a good palate cleanser, if you will, to the story, to the visual story. In terms of the story suffers so much from so much grandiose and so much vast, you know, technological displays of special effects and here you had a, a sequence where you could actually have a person a character interacting it made it more personal it made it more star trekish being able to interact physically interact not through a ship but through a person and you have spock and kirk together doing this which was really cool and like i said the sets when you look at the pictures they look really good but obviously it's the finished product that counts so I definitely recommend looking this stuff up because this is a great part of this deleted scene that you can actually see in the comic book. So overall, I would say that the comic book is great as far as following the story and that you do lose some things, like I said earlier, and you gain something really, really good that when you, you know, when you really, really look at it in terms of trying to figure out, well, what was this all about? If you do the research, if you go through some of these websites, it's really, really interesting. Another website I believe you might want to take a look at is MarcelloRossi.info. In this website, there's a lot of color pictures also of this scene that was uh, removed. So if you're a Star Trek fan, this is one of those great you know research points that if you want to kind of dive deep into it, here's a great sequence that never made it that you, you know, you'll be able to find more information about. And if you're a comic book collector and Star Trek comic books, and in, you know you know my specific take on it, I go for the movie version of stuff, this is a great entry. It's like I mentioned before, to me, it's a classic example of what a comic book movie adaptation uh, should be. The, the look of it, the specific look of it. What's cool is that on the comic book, after the story is over and you're done reading the story, there's a couple of extra little articles, like magazine kind of articles, about the Star Trek phenomenon. Now keep in mind, this is back in 1979 <laughs> that this was written, so some of the information is a little dated. There's an interview, let's see, Touching Base with Reality, an interview with Jesco Von Puttkamer. <laughs> <laughs> we'll say that three times fast. And there's also a glossary of Star Trek The Motion Picture terms. So, wow. So in case you have no idea what some of these things are, you have the you know that information. And in the back, you have a cool little Enterprise poster. So they did throw a couple of little bonus bones at you. No pun intended. You know, bones, you know, McCoy. Anyway, like I said earlier, if you're into Trek and comics and you're a fan of the motion picture, this is a must-have. 
Let's take a quick break now and listen to a little spot from our friends at IC Robots. If you're into anything having to do with retro, vintage toys and 80s shows and all kinds of 80s and 70s vintage retro kind of games, television, movies, all of that geek culture that we love here at GeekFest Rants, take a look when you visit their site. They have a podcast called The Toys R Us Report and we strongly recommend it. So have a listen. Tune in to the Toys R Us report for your weekly dose of pop culture talk that's out of this world. Movies, TV, toys, comics and more every Wednesday on the IC Robots radio network at icrobots.com. What are you waiting for? It's time to get down or come up. All right, we're back. Thank you guys from IC Robots. And let's continue with our show. On today's Posters of the Month, we are going to look at two classic posters, at least to me. One from the 80s, one from the 70s. The first one up is going to be 1985's Rambo First Blood Part 2. This is a poster that I got probably around 1985, I imagine, because uh, I think I got it pretty quickly after the movie came out. The movie is a whole other thing to talk about the stallone films the rambo films are a piece of you know action adventure genre material that could be described as way over the top true it is true very somewhat of a piece of propaganda of its time of its you know anti uh communist you know post-vietnam war era genre which had developed in the 80s with serious films that really started in the 70s, if you think about it, with The Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now. But then in the 80s, they kind of turned it into fun, in a way, you know. Uh, some films remain serious, like Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, you know, those kind of films. But then there was a whole other subgenre of the fun war films, and that's where you have your Rambos, which kind of as far as I'm concerned, tries to ride the line as much as possible between somewhat serious and all-action-adventure, you know, comic book almost action, uh, <laughs> you know, feats that get done by the, you know, your lead character to the way over-the-top ridiculous, you know, for, you know, the missing in actions and the, you know, like the canon films version of the Vietnam War. Some of them are just so ridiculously over the top, but that's what happens. I mean, that's, I'm sure that's also what happened in, you know, if you look at World War II films, you know, you have a wave of between serious and ridiculous versions of these portrayals of these wars. Well, the Vietnam War went through the similar stages where it got completely, absolutely ridiculous where people could kind of live out their fantasy of actually rewriting history and winning the war in a movie fashion by creating these characters that, you know, this time, you know, he doesn't have his arms tied behind his back. He's going to go win it for all, and everybody can cheer. And it's like, you know, there are very, very thick. <laughs> There's a thick, thick layer of political propaganda, you know, on top of a lot of these films. And the Rambo film... First Blood Part 2, yeah, that was the, the, the granddaddy, you know, of the beginning of that wave of those sort of films, as far as I'm concerned. I'm missing in action, they might have, I'm not entirely sure, they might have kind of beaten, beaten them to the punch a little bit earlier, but it's all part of those mid-80s type of films. 
With Rambo, you got to remember it came from First Blood. Now, First Blood, I, I consider it to be almost a completely different film. It is probably one of Stallone's best films, according to me, of course. Copland being another one. But when he moved on to First Blood Part 2, there was a serious conscious effort, I guess, at some point, to make this, you know, a big action-y, James Bondy kind of, <laughs> you know, as far as the action goes, spectacle. Now, one of the things that at the time I wasn't aware of, and I kind of realized later on, was that one of the writers, other than Sylvester Stallone, who has the co-credit screenplay, you know, title, is James Cameron, who at the same time as he was writing this film, he was also writing Aliens. So I do see a similarity in these films in terms of how the action is written and how the sequences are staged in order to create an entertaining presentation. Granted, with Aliens, you know you're in a fantastical science fiction world, and here, you're not supposed to believe that. You're supposed to believe it's real life because, you know, it's a contemporary film. That is one of the reasons I defend this film <laughs> a little more than any of the other sequels, the actual Rambo film, and I'm pretty sure they're going to make a couple more sooner or later. This film is also one of the famous George Cosmetos films. You might remember George from directing Cobra, another ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous, big Sylvester Stallone film. You know, this is where he gets his his street cred as an action star, you know, these kind of films. And just like Cobra, you know, where, you know, the, the, the rumors going around that George Cosmatos was just kind of like somebody whose name was put as the director. But in the reality, when Stallone was the star, he was really kind of like ghost directing a lot of his films that he could kind of just roll over George and do his own thing. So that's always something that's, you know, in the back of everybody's mind. Same thing with Cobra. Cobra had an absolutely cool, cool poster. And the poster does exactly what the poster is supposed to do. It sells you a movie based on a character. And I, I think I might have gone seen it just based on the poster. It was such a cool poster. Well, here, for First Blood Part 2, what we have with the poster is something different in terms of now we're in the mid-80s and there's a lot of airbrushing going on on photos. Photoshop is right around the corner. The industry has changed Compared to some of those other classic posters that I talked about before, you know, your Flash Gordons, your Star Wars, the Warriors, the Thing, you know, posters that used to be drawn, hand-drawn or painted that, you know, in that manner. And now there is more experimenting and basically switching over to the airbrushing side of design, you know, graphic design. And this one is no exception. The poster that I'm talking about is what I would consider to be the typical one sheet for the film. You have off the bat on the top Stallone of big bold letters. He is the star. He gets top billing. It doesn't matter how you slice it. He, it's it's a Stallone film. That's what you that's what you get. And uh, you have a picture of him holding a bazooka, more or less. You know, an RPG launcher. He's shirtless, of course. It's Stallone. He's got to be shirtless, and. Around the crotch area, you get Rambo, just as big as Stallone, and it says First Blood Part Two. Well, 
the background, it's just an entire something in flames, just a big, fiery, raging fire behind them. And on the top uh, right, you see uh, some of the copy they put in. It says, they sent him on a mission and set him up to fail, but they made one mistake. They forgot they were dealing with Rambo. So now you go down to the uh, title. Next to the O of Rambo, there's also a small picture of Rambo. Again, uh, shirtless. But this one is a full-blown picture. It's It doesn't seem to be tweaked in a Photoshop manner like the main picture of him that I'm going to talk about in a second. And he's holding the bow, the bow and arrow, and he's about to, I guess, fire the bow. Now, this is an unusual little addition. You know, you don't always see something like that, a double picture of the same character. And it's unusual because, you know, the main picture, like I said, he's holding the, the bazooka, the, the, the RPG, and you figure, well, maybe the secondary picture is just supposed to show us something more about him that is con somewhat contradictory or different than the top picture. The top picture is complete action. It's complete, absolute action. The top picture is also not a still from the movie. It's a promotion shot. You know, he's looking at the camera and he's holding the, he's not really holding the, the, the RPG in somewhat the proper manner. He's not really aiming it. He's kind of holding it, posing with it more or less. However, the picture of him next to the title Rambo, he is seems to be more of a a shot from the film, more or less. But anyway, those are semantics. And then underneath First Blood Part 2, it says, No man, no law, no war can stop him. So, yeah, you know, you get exactly what you pay for <laughs> when you go see this movie. If this doesn't tell you what this movie's about, nothing will. What's a little unusual about the main picture of him, you know, that the, the big head-on picture of him, is that it to me it looks like there's a lot of airbrushing going on in terms of making his face look as possibly as young as possible. Now, granted, this is 85. He doesn't look as old as he does now, uh, but it still looks like they tried to clean him up as much as possible as far as any wrinkles or scars or anything like that on the face area on the chest obviously because he is supposed to be this war vet who's been through just about everything he's got scars all over his chest but it still looks like it's been crazy airbrushed in terms of the shine on his muscles and on his chest and on his shoulders it, they went to town as far as i'm concerned in the airbrushing department you can tell the difference between like for example his chest looks like it's made out of plastic because it's so glimmery shiny fakey looking and part of his face looks that way but when you look at one of his hands it looks like they really didn't do too much touching up so the hands look a little more real and obviously like i said before the picture next to the o that looks completely like a photo that was taken on the set so yeah like i said before this is a, a different style of posters mondo has done other versions of this poster you know more modern versions that are in my opinion much nicer this one it's just so over-the-top, an instrument to sell a movie. And we always have to remember, and I, you know, we keep forgetting, these posters are not meant to be art. These posters are plain and simple marketing, you know, commercials. It's a picture that you're supposed to stare at and say, I'm going to go see this movie because of that picture. The people that are going to see these movies who are already fans of the franchise, if you will, or the actor or whatever, they're going to go see it no matter what. But it's always needed 
you know, to have a visual representation of what you're talking about. And this is what they decided with this one. This picture, I mean, it looks like something out of a romance novel cover. You know, it's like, it's, this could be Fabio, you know, posing with some lady in the, uh, you know, 18th century garments and stuff like that. It's just so over the top. I wonder, to, like, today, if they were to make a movie, you know, like this, what would it look like? I don't know if they would go this ridiculously in that direction. Nowadays, when you see a poster like this, it's usually more associated with some, you know, the, the, the 999th action film on your Netflix streaming service of some unknown actor, and they just slap together a couple of pictures, and there you go. Here's this action movie. It looks cliche, the action aspect of, of what they're showing us. You're obviously selling not so much the action, I think, but the star. This is for Stallone fans. This is, if you're the type of person that likes to see Stallone half naked, <laughs> you know, all greasy and oiled up holding shooting guns, this is exactly what you're going to get. Now, obviously, I don't, I, I wouldn't put myself in that category, even though I did see this movie and I love this. This is a great movie. It's that you have to be able to, just like with most other films, you got to be able to separate the entertainment factor from the real factor. And Stallone, like some more modern actors, and not so modern actors, you, you take somebody like a Stallone, like a Clean Eastwood, like nowadays somebody like uh, Mark Wahlberg. These are the type of actors that can hopefully bring in everybody. The people that are there to see it for entertainment and the people that are there to see it because they think it's real and they have this mythical imagination that this is what life is like or should be like or could be like. You know, it kind of starts to turn political after a while in terms of what kind of people you're trying to rein in. And this is perfect because, like I said, in the 80s, that was his thing. He was grabbing everybody. He was grabbing film fans and a certain political leaning kind of people all in one big tent and, you know, taking their five bucks and saying, thanks for coming. Well, that's how it works. This is a completely different movie than The First Blood. I think First Blood is a much better film in terms of being serious. But this movie, you know, I'd like to credit Cameron in terms of the writing, in terms of the pacing, the one thing leads to another and really creative action sequences that are just damn entertaining. And with him, you know, and even with Stallone, you do have a character that is... Very much like the first Blood character, obviously, because it is the same character, but he now becomes a cartoon character. With first Blood, you can kind of almost say, you know what, yes, it is possible for this character in this film, in this location, to pull this off, you know, what he does in first Blood. Here, it's kind of like saying, it's jumping the shark and we're enjoying it, okay? We're going to go with it, because here he becomes a superhero. He does things that are just unbelievable. And forget it. As you go forward in these films, you, you, you just cannot believe, you know, the type of things that this character does. You know, he does basically turn into James Bond. He is a an unstoppable, you know, killing machine <laughs> that works for the good guys, more or less. And that, uh, you know, we kind of then start to enjoy the kills, which is kind of like what happens with... Um, Films like 
like, uh, you know, Friday the 13th and Halloween and Freddy Krueger films, you know, it, it be for horror fans, it becomes about the kill, the creative ways of killing somebody. Well, in this film, you start to kind of tippy toeing into that area. In the first film, you're more forgiving of it because he's trying to improvise based on his environment. Here, it's kind of like going to a toy store and him saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. You know, it's a little different. But, like I mentioned before, if you can kind of separate yourself from some of the messages that you're being given, this is a super fun film, you know, in this franchise. And probably the, the best action film in the Rambo series. But, the poster, like I said before, I couldn't find any information about who designed it. A lot of times, and this is going to happen on the next one we review, is that a lot of times they hire agencies to, to do the posters. They're not necessarily going after famous poster artists like they have in the past with a lot of Spielberg and you know Lucas and some of these other films that I've reviewed uh, their posters for. A lot of times they just say, you know what? Uh, let's go to the XYZ agency, get me a couple of concepts, and when they decide which one it is, you really don't know, you know, who ended up putting together this final design. It could have been done by a committee. It most likely it went back and forth a couple of times between the agency and the studio, and then they ended up with what you see here. But this is the main poster, I believe, that was mainly used for most of the promotion of the film. Obviously, when you go to the international markets, they sometimes tweak it and they go for different kind of pictures, depending on the location of where you're trying to sell this film. But I think even as far as the soundtrack, or I think the novel actually had a, a different picture, an actual, an actual picture of him from the movie. But this is the the um, iconic, you know, Rambo First Blood Part Two art that you would see, you know, most of the time. For our second film, we are going with Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. This was put out in 1972. We've talked about this and all of the other ape films in the past, a very long time ago, I think. This being, to me, at first, it was one of these forgettable sequels that I wasn't really interested in. You know, the main film was always the big daddy and the one that was the best. And I and it's still, technically, it is the best. But as the film turned into a franchise and the producers thought of different ways of trying to steer this franchise in a coherent direction, which they did not always succeed, especially by the time they got to the fifth film, this film to me is the second best of all. Now, the poster that I'm talking about is the one that, let me just describe it to you, it's kind of broken into three horizontal sections the middle you have conquest of the planet of the apes almost like in stone in a 3d fashion kind of like it's coming at you like it's almost a monolithic mountain almost like you know kind of jetting out towards the audience with a profile of i think it's caesar on the right side underneath you have a combination and this is weird because i i hadn't seen this done you know too often especially so early in terms of 1972 this is a, a, a something that's a little different as far as i'm concerned you do have a whole bunch of apes and they look almost exactly the same in terms of how they're drawn walk they're kind of running towards the right side of the frame underneath all of them wearing kind of like a bluish greenish color outfits now this is done in art just like the cornelius profile this is drawn it looks like at least it looks hand drawn 
And then with that lower section, you also have a whole bunch of what appears to be policemen or military, let's say, from that film, shooting from the left towards the right, as if they're kind of shooting towards these apes. It doesn't make too much sense in terms of you have a photographic element and a artistic element. And I'm going to assume that that's what they wanted to show. They wanted to show these policemen uh, shooting at apes that are kind of running in the opposite direction. It's almost like they're being shot in the back, if you think about it. They could have reversed the shot to have them coming towards the police, but it's weird how they decided not to. Then on the top, you know, horizontal section, above the title, you have another photographic shot of the film. So it's a wide screenish kind of shot of all of the gorillas in their red jumpsuits. Some of them are holding guns, possibly. Some of them might be holding shields. And they're kind of staring forward towards the camera with Caesar, I believe, right in the middle in front of a fire that's breaking out right on top of the word conquest. So, you know, if this doesn't scream, you know, conflict and action, nothing basically does. The copy on on the poster, all, all the way up on the top, it says... All new, The Revolt of the Apes, the most awesome spectacle in the annals of science fiction. Then you have the title, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. And right next to it in smaller print, the newest and biggest yet. And then underneath you have, you know, the, the credits of the film, you know, who's who stars in it. What's interesting about the, the credits is something that I've noticed that it's different now a lot of times. And even possibly in the past, but in this particular picture i guess they decided not to really bother with it too much is that everybody's names is pretty much the same size from the actors to the director to the producer you know everybody seems to share the same size text and that's something that's very disputable at times because i know uh that even for example when we're talking about rambo even on the text below the the art uh, they make sure that Sylvester Stallone's name is bigger than everybody else's, just as big as the title of the movie. The only other person that has a large size font for their name is Richard Crenna on Rambo. But everybody else seems to have a smaller sizes, including the director. But here for Conquest, everybody seems to be equal. I don't know if that was just randomness of the artists or the place that it was done. Because again, this is another one of these posters that I could not find <laughs> once again the artist and it's a possibility because when you're dealing with pictures then it's hard to really take the credit for pictures you know if you if you're using actual pictures of the film now if you're completely drawing it from scratch that might be different you can probably give somebody credit but like for uh, Rambo like I mentioned earlier because it's basically a series of pictures kind of like a collage that has been airbrushed, it's really difficult to give credit to one person for putting together this picture airbrushing collage. And Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, again, because of the combination of... and Now, there was no Photoshop back then. <laughs> this is 1972 we're talking about. So it's a different technology altogether. But, you know, you do have that thing where they're actually combining the two. And it's a, it's a different style than, than I'm what, I, what I'm used to seeing. But this is uh, one of my favorite ape films. Probably my second favorite, like I said earlier. 
And the poster is very of its time. You know, it's 1972. This is also Conquest became unofficially, you know, every uh, person involved in the film pretty much will tell you that it wasn't meant to be a social commentary on civil rights and the civil rights struggles and the equality struggles and all that stuff. But you could not get away from the comparisons of what was happening in the country at the time, you know, with race riots and all types of uh, racial inequalities that were taking place, which are very ironic nowadays, that this kind of subject keeps coming back. But it does kind of represent that. It kind of also has a a grindhousey feel to it, even though I don't even think you could kind of categorize this as a grindhouse type of movie. But because of its low budget nature, you know, you got to remember these films by the time they got to the fourth and fifth, they almost had no money <laughs> to put these things together. A lot of it shot at night, you know, very, you try to hide as much as possible, you know, because of that. Again, this is a great film. And the poster. Similar to even, I would say, we talked about The Warriors. That kind of poster where it felt kind of dirty and and kind of grungy. You get a little bit of that in this poster too. Especially because of the art and those pictures. The pictures are very like dark and kind of grainy looking. So it's kind of screaming at you, 70s, you know. And it's a great poster and I love having it as part of my favorites. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed today's episode. We... Started out with Star Trek The Motion Picture. We went through the action figure line that was a pretty surprising, uh, you know, high quality product as far as I'm concerned. This is the first time I ever owned them, or at least some of them. And then we moved on to the comic book movie adaptation of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Another great entry, and as I mentioned during the review that I was doing, it is just one of the best looking classic, you know, comic book versions of a movie, you know, just across the board. Fantastic likenesses, very rich colors. You know, like I said, it's the definition of classic comic book adaptations as far as I'm concerned. Then we moved on to our posters of the month with Rambo First Blood Part 2 and Conquest for the Planet of the Apes. Two great films, two great posters. And, uh, you know, with some of the background information, hopefully, that we can gather you know about some of these films we have a lot of fun with these in the future we are going to continue as i mentioned that during the opening of the show we are going to continue with star trek the motion picture because we have a few more subjects we like to cover so you'll hear them pretty pretty soon so on behalf of everybody here thank you for listening and we will see you next time here at geek fest rants bye bye everybody The biggest, the newest, the most exciting of all the Planet of the Apes pictures. Climaxed by the spectacular Revolt of the Apes. The most awesome, the most horrifying spectacle in the annals of science fiction. First pampered as pets, then abused as servants, now oppressed as slaves. Mobilization of all security forces, police, militia, and reserve defense units. See that every entrance into the city is cordoned off immediately. Yes, sir. Our control methods will include the use of tear gas and sedation guns. There will be but one control method. 
shoot to kill. Ready? the screen explode as man faces ape in the ultimate revolution. Where there is fire, there is smoke. And in that smoke, from this day forward, my people will plot and plan for the inevitable day of man's downfall. And that day is upon you now! <laughs> If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at GeekFestRants. I don't know what we're yelling about! GeekFestRants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>